Hey, Chris. Welcome back, man. Good to be back. I thought I was going to live in New York, but here I am. I'm glad you made it. Tell me a little bit about it. It was good. I mean, we, we made our way through Michigan, saw some friends there, met Zoe in Syracuse, got her set up for opening weekend there at the college. Wow. I, Julie came back on Sunday. I went down to well, Bill drove up to get me on Saturday night. I went down on Sunday to speak at Beacon and I was supposed to come home Sunday. We moved it to Monday. Then we went to the wrong airport on Monday evening. <laughs> So I had to fly out on Tuesday evening. On Tuesday evening, uh-huh. the flight was canceled last minute. Uh-huh. So I, I was able to, to fly home today. So here, here I am, exhausted, <laughs> good, but happy. It was, it was a good weekend. Zoe, Zoe's doing really well. It was I'm great so to glad. see friends along the way. Good. I'm so glad. Look, I'm, I'm ready and, and anxious to talk about these texts, uh, not just because I've got to speak this Sunday, but because, man, looking at these passages, right, Jeremiah um, 18 um, is, they're just, we'll get to it in a second, but just some, some tough words, <laughs> God against the prophet, and then get to um, Philemon, which, of course, this is, a, a you know, a text that is, talked about and lots of speculation, you know, is God allowing for mastery and slavery? Yeah. Um, and that's not even, not even getting into the gospel passage from Luke, right? Where it's like Jesus is, it, it seems like God is against the family. Um, yeah. Yes. yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think we could sum these texts up this week by saying God is against everything we think he should be for and for the, or at least not against the things we, we think he should be against. If not quite for it, slavery, mastery and slavery. Right. It, it certainly doesn't condemn it the way we would like it to be condemned. No, no. Yeah. I mean, we can look at, I'm happy to read whatever uh, from the Jeremiah passage, but I mean, I'm looking at the end of this Jeremiah text and thus says Jeremiah, the Lord, Jeremiah 18, right? Yeah, Jeremiah 18, 1 through 11. And at the end of this passage, thus says the Lord, look, I am a potter shaping evil against you and devising a plan against you. Turn now all of you from your evil way and amend your ways and your doings, which, you know, if we just kind of look at that and just take the, the plain view, uh, mm-hmm. you know, God is using evil god's plan is he's incorporating evil into it crafting uh and that is yeah that doesn't seem like good news at all yeah so i I don't i don't want us to fix here because you know i've i've written about it we've talked about it i did a class recently on it but i do think it's worth stopping and we talked about this a little bit in preparation for this conversation but I, I think we have to just, some of us need to come to terms with the fact that we are, we're going to keep being scandalized by scripture or put off by it until we come to terms with the fact that it is difficult and it's meant to be difficult. And 
then once we recognize that it's it's good for it to be difficult for us, we have we have to give we have to read in faith. We have to read in confidence that the living God is speaking in these texts. So that the plain reading and what I'm so I, I think and we'll, we'll get to this in a moment, but I think there are ways in which scripture does say things that are true in in what we might call a simple way, or mm-hmm. at least they they're true, they're they're direct. Love God with all your heart, love your neighbor as yourself, keep yeah. the Sabbath day, don't covet, don't commit adultery. Like those things, in a sense, are straightforward. They're not esoteric and they're not complex, although they are mysterious. And again, we'll say more about that in a moment. But the plain reading. And what I mean by that is the reading that comes to me without me giving it any thought, without me making any effort to understand, the reading that doesn't surprise me, but confirms what I already thought. That reading is always wrong, Mm -hmm. always wrong of any text, not just these scandalous ones. But if I come to to any text of the Bible, John 3.16 or Jeremiah 18 or Philemon, whatever it is, any text of the Bible, and I read it and say, well, yeah, that's exactly what I thought it said. Then I'm not hearing the word of God. I'm simply looking in the mirror and calling the face I see someone's faces other than my, someone's face other than my own, right? Like that, it's, it's a kind of deception. Right? Hmm. I, if we believe that scripture is the voice of the living God, then God is speaking when I read these texts. And that is going to surprise me because he's going to say something I couldn't say to myself. He's going to say something that I wouldn't have. And I, and I don't, I mean this at lots of levels of reading, corporate as well as personal. But, and I don't think this is something we can make happen. Like every single time we open the Bible, we can make that kind of surprise happen. Mm-hmm. But, nor should we nor should we want to but the plain reading is is never the right one right it's Hmm. it's never because it's again just an affirmation of what i'm already thinking of what i've already found words for what i'm already holding to be true or at least that i fear is true so i when we come to a text like jeremiah or philemon or the gospel for this week and we're kind of on our back foot. I mean, that, that makes sense. But at some point we have to realize those of us who've, who've felt that many times and had that conversation many times, that's precisely what the text means to do. So now the work begins. And sometimes I, I, I do think there are things in the Bible that are meant to trouble us morally. Our moral imagination should rebel against what seems to be being said and done. Sometimes I suspect that we're at least some of us are not so much morally put off as we are just outraged that it's so difficult. We don't want to have to make the effort. We yeah. want the meaning to just show itself to us. And we don't want that meaning to ever be anything that is not already fitted to our sensibilities. Right. Not already plain to us. Not already plain and not already likable what we prefer it to be. Mm. And yeah, I mean, when we say that out loud, we realize, well, then it wouldn't be God's word, right? It'd be an echo chamber. 
Mm-hmm. And I think either the scripture speaks with the voice of another, or it just echoes my voice back to me. And we've got, and, and of course, the voice of the other can speak in the echo. So, I mean, we're talking mystery, mysteries here, but I, I think, yeah, we, we shouldn't stick here too long, but I don't, I don't think we should keep fretting about the fact that it's difficult. Yes, it's difficult. And that difficulty is an invitation into, so what is it that God is saying? Mm-hmm. Right now, right mm-hmm. here for us in these texts. Yeah, that's great. I would love if you'd write a book about this, man. That'd be, that'd be wonderful. How about I write um, a book and then write a second edition? Would you read Would you read both editions or are you only going to read one? Oh, I would have to read both. That'd be incredible. Yeah, yeah. no, please do that. Oh, yeah. Um, I, so can we just reflect then specifically on the Jeremiah passage quickly before oh. we jump to, jump to Philemon? I mean, so given what you've said uh where where do we go i mean how do we how do we hear this so obviously the this this plain view kind of reading isn't where we want to go with it so then what might we do yeah i think we can go with him to the potter's house i mean we can we can hear him relate what it was that he heard and what it was that he saw right so he he goes down he hears the word from the lord an invitation to go down to the potter's house and so he goes Mm -hmm. and he sees that he's working right he sees the potter is working and he's watching it right and and if you study the book of jeremiah this often happens i mean right from the very beginning of jeremiah's call he's asked what do you see right so jeremiah hearing the word is integrally related to what Jeremiah sees, which is an yeah. interesting you know, aspect of Jeremiah's ministry. Unlike Ezekiel and Isaiah, Jeremiah does not see the Lord. He does not have a, a vision of the Lord in the way that, you know, Ezekiel 1, the Lord appears to Ezekiel by the river in Babylon. Isaiah 6, the year King Uzziah dies, he's in the temple and he sees the Lord. Yeah. Jeremiah sees the way the Lord sees. Mm-hmm. So he's yeah. not so much seeing the Lord as he is seen as the Lord sees. Mm-hmm. And in this moment, he's seen the, the potter working. And then the word of the Lord comes to him again with this question. Can I not do with you, O house of Israel, just as this potter has done? Can I not do what this potter has done? And that's what leads up to this line that you were asking about. I'm a potter shaping evil against you and devising a plan against you. Turn now you, turn now all of you from your evil way. So I think the key is to realize, yeah, in isolation, if we're not reading carefully, it looks as if God is saying, I'm shaping evil against you. But I think it is pretty clear And by the way, the clarity of the text is not the same thing as the plain sense. Hmm. I think very often a text is very clear, but we, the plain sense we take away from it is to explain it away. For example, Jesus says things about money and about marriage that are clear, (laughs) but our plain reading of them is, is to dismiss them as to spiritualize them away. 
Right? Yeah. So the plain reading is the reading that I assume must be right. And I mm-hmm. assume it so completely that I don't even consider any other alternative. So I think the Lord is clearly saying I'm shaping evil, but what does this, what is the evil he's shaping? So he's already given us this metaphor of the potter working with the clay, right? And he's Mm -hmm. dealing in nations and kingdoms, pluck up, break down, destroy. Yeah. But the goal here is what's key, right? So earlier in the passage, he says, if that nation turns from its evil, I will change my mind about the disaster. Right? Mm-hmm. But if it continues to do evil, mm-hmm. then I will change my mind about the good. Right? So I'm, I'm a potter shaping evil against you and devising a plan against you. Turn now all of you from your evil way, amend your ways and your doings. So I think the first thing is to see what, whatever is meant here by evil is the act of God against the evil we're doing. Right? So it's not evil in some absolute sense. I mean, God does not do evil. If mm-hmm. by evil you mean, God cannot do evil. If by evil you mean wickedness. Right? Right. But when God resists the evil we want to do, what do we call that experience? Like, so when, when we want to do evil and we meet with resistance, we experience that resistance as an evil. Mm-hmm. Right. So all, all that's being said here is that God is against the evil that we do and is destroying the evil that we do. Devising a plan to thwart our plans to do evil. Right. So it's a in the example, an example would be what Joseph's brothers are wanting to do. They're devising a plan to kill him or to at least sell him into slavery and make it seem as if he's been killed. But God is devising another plan, right? So what does Joseph say when he when they finally are reconciled? What you meant for evil, God meant for good. But what God did was do an evil to their evil. God destroyed their evil mm-hmm. in bringing about the good. Right? right. So why talk this way? I, I, yeah. There are at least two reasons, right? One is because we are meant to pay attention. And the kind of plainness that we want Again, God is clear. The the issue here is not lack of clarity. The issue is we want plainness. We don't want to have to effort. We don't want to have to attend to what it is God is saying and question ourselves and our grasp of it. So Mm -hmm. some of this is pedagogy. It's divine pedagogy. It's God teaching us. Look at Proverbs 1, right? The way in which we learn to be wise is by attending to parables and dark sayings and riddles. We, we have to give ourselves to difficult words, but we can do that in confidence because we know the goodness of this God. So that's, that's the first thing. The second thing is these words are not only meant to teach us, they're meant to bring about what they're talking about. They're meant to arrest us and mm. to bring us up short, right? So it's like, and we've talked about this many times, but the, God cannot do violence if by violence we mean anything that violates our creatureliness. I mean, our creatureliness exists because God is being God to us. Yeah, God can be forceful. And there are ways, and, and when we need it, that's exactly what God is, forceful. 
So on, in terms of our experience of it, it may appear to be evil. It may seem, it may impact as, a, as something we do not want to undergo or suffer, but it's not evil theologically speaking, right? It's not, it's not truly evil. It's just a way of shattering the, the evil that is in us, the evil we're attempting to do, the evil that we're planning. So I think that's, I think that's a pretty clear reading. It's only not plain to us because we're not, many of us, again, I'm talking here broad, broad strokes, but mm -hmm. we're, we're not accustomed to thinking of the Christian life in these terms. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah, and I guess part of what I'm thinking, too, is going back to that idea of divine simplicity. We're not simple in the way that God is. Right. We are. <laughs> multi I, in, I yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's a, great, right, that's, but... that's a great point, right? So God is simple in that God is fully only always God. There's utter consistency, right? God does not have sides right. or moods. But we do have sides. We do have moods. We, we are not simple and mm -mm. You're, we're dealing with the complexity of human being and human interaction, but we're also dealing with the mystery of iniquity or the absurdity of evil, which is making it so that even when God is speaking clearly to us, a word that's mysterious, it's refracted through us, through the brokenness of our, of our, yes. yeah, and yeah, it yeah, yeah. seems complex. Mm -hmm. So if you if you think about you know a window that's been shattered, and the light is shining through it, and you're looking at the light that has shone through that glass, and now is casting all of these various shapes on the wall, mm -hmm. like the light is not causing those shapes, right? The light is is being the light. It's the fracturedness of the glass, right? That's sh that's shaping. The, the shadow cast by the light on the glass. So I think we, ha we have to recognize that when it feels, when it feels complicated and it feels like too much, too much, there's, there, it's, it's over our heads in that sense. We, we, we have to recognize that that's always a reflection of our fracturedness not mm -hmm. god being difficult for difficulty's sake or god showing off or or god being malicious or cruel or pedantic or any, or anything like that right god is a good teacher he is wisdom itself mm -hmm. so he teaches us exactly the way we need to learn Mm -hmm. That said, God is over our heads, right? I mean, God is too deep for us. There is a mystery to God's knowing and, and the knowing of God that is overwhelming. And right. I think we, we have to sense that. We have to find a way to, to be present to the opening up of the full complexity of our being to the utter mystery of God and, and not to be afraid in that opening, in, in that overwhelmness. Mm -hmm. that, that and that overwhelmness is it's it's too much good it's too much clarity there's too much clarity that's exactly right there's too much clarity it and this is you know bonifer is terrific on this that 
our problem with the Bible is not that it's too hard to understand. It's that it's clarity is too hard to live. Right. right? It puts too much of a demand on us. Right. Mm -hmm. And I think we need to, we need to make those distinctions. We need, we need yeah. to learn to live with those distinctions. All right. Mm -hmm. Let's, let's, let's go to the, that, go, go ahead. just as an aside, that's also yeah. super helpful because I mean, that, that is such a distinction from making it then approaching scripture as some kind of elitist game. Oh, right. Yeah. Like it's, if you've, you know, if you've studied under the right people or, you know, have read the right books or, you know, or this or that, that, that that's not at all what's going on here. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I mean, right. I mean, there's, there's no, there's no goal here of mastering the text, right? You can't actually master this text if it's the voice of the living God. Now you can master these texts in a sheerly literary or historical way, but that won't, turn you to Christ, that won't turn you to your neighbor or to those in need. I mean, that won't alter you. That won't sanctify you. So, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm assuming that all of us are coming in good faith to these texts as the word of God. Mm -hmm. Of course, that's probably very rarely true for all of us all the time, but hopefully is mostly true for some of us some of the time. <laughs> Right. So Philemon. Yeah. I mean, given what I just said, kind of what would you do? Like if you, what would you do with that text based on what I just said? Mm. Gosh, I love when you put me on the spot. Well, here's what I wouldn't do. I wouldn't read it and say, well, obviously what we have is God allowing for mastery and slavery. Right. Right. Absolutely. <laughs> and let's just, let's just only ever spiritualize it such that reading this onto our context just affirms, you know, a kind of let's just worry about the spiritual health and not worry too much about um, any kind of perception of social injustices. Yeah, yeah, that's right. I, I mean, I think that's at least, yeah, it's at least a place to start. But I, I do think still the way you're framing that betrays this kind of hesitancy with the text. And I think that yeah, a lot of us, enough. a lot of us are, we're still, and I understand why. So this is not, you know, I'm trying to shame you, but no one else. All right, no, I'm kidding. Good. Like, it's not a it's not meant as, as any kind of, you know, slap at anyone because there are very understandable reasons for our hesitancy, mm -hmm. but we need to learn to recognize that in ourselves that, Hey, there I am again, apologizing for the Bible or trying to keep myself from being taken up by some evil. The Bible seems to be condoning. And I think we have to come with confidence that's just not what these words mean. They, that, that's not what God is saying. And clearly there are passages of scripture that in the plain sense and in what we might call the, the literary sense, the literal sense, there are, and again, I don't, we don't need to do a deep dive here, but notice I'm using these terms, the literal sense as something distinct from what God is clearly saying. Yeah. And I'm using both of those terms in distinction from the plain sense, which is the reading that appears to me or the interpretation that appears to me most, you know, automatically without me mm -hmm. 
making any changes. I think we, we have to recognize that there are plenty of texts that in the literary sense, the literal sense, they do say evil things. They attribute evil things yeah. to God or call us to do evil things or call us to condone them. But, and, and if we take a plain sense, then we're either going to be repelled by that and reject the Bible, or mm -hmm. we're going to ignore our own hearts and insist that the Bible cannot be wrong because it's God's word. And then we end up kind of searing our conscience in the process. But I think right. the wisdom of both the rabbis and the, the fathers, the wisdom of the saints and the prophets is don't read until there is the clear voice of God speaking in a way that surprises you toward obedience in love of your neighbor. Mm. And say that once don't, again, don't stop. Don't stop until you do mm. read until the clear voice is heard the voice of the living God that's calling yeah. surprising you and calling you toward obedience or surprising you toward obedience in the love of your in the love of your neighbor so I, I just I think I want so many of us to get past the hesitancy yeah that is where so much of the conversation is right I mean it's yeah. a good way to say it I mean we're, we're not past it yeah that's exactly right and I, I we Again, I understand why, and I don't want to, to push anyone, but I do want to give everyone permission that if you're ready, you, you can get past that. You can trust that what God is saying is not bound to what the literal sense says, and it's certainly not bound to what your plain reading suggests the text says. God will speak clearly. It just may take a while, because it may take a while for, for, me, for us to get clear enough mm -hmm. to receive the to receive the word clearly right so i want to say this before we stop about well, well let's come to the gospel then uh, and then i'll well before we go to the gospel let me say this about philemon yeah i think right in the opening line we 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 hear paul referring to himself as a prisoner right and then timothy our brother mm -hmm. philemon dear friend co-worker co-worker Aphia, sister Archippus, fellow soldier, etc. And what's striking about this is that he starts with this relationship in which he seems to be Christ's prisoner, but everyone else is in mutuality. Brother, right. sister, fellow soldier, co-worker, friend. Mm -hmm. So that should alert us to, wait a minute, what's happening here? That what it means to be a prisoner of Christ is to be brought into mutuality and equality with each other. So whatever this imprisonment is that Christ has brought about, it's actually mm -hmm. freeing Paul into equality and mutuality with those around him. Now, that's all the more striking because these are people that Paul would have imprisoned earlier in his life. Right. When Paul is the Pharisee right. on the hunt for these heretics, what's he doing? Yeah. He's throwing them into prison. But yeah. once he's arrested by Jesus, they become his equals, they become his mutuals. And I think, right, which is, I mean, to the, to the earlier point, right, about yes. the kind of God working evil against, against evil. evil, right, That's which exactly is not right. a wickedness, but yeah, it's, it's the opposite no doubt. Yeah, it's, right. it's trampling down death by death, doing evil to evil, destroying wrath with wrath. It's that it's the counteracting work of God, the negation of the negation, the no to the no, 
the, the darkness of God coming against the darkness in our life and making it light. I mean, over and over and over again, scripture and Christian tradition, Jewish tradition, show us this, this is how God works, right? Yeah. God curses the curse, right? And that's what's happening here, that Paul, the one who makes prisoners of others, is made a prisoner by Christ in such a way that suddenly he is engaging everyone else as his equals. So that's, if we, if we follow that line of thought, then I think the reading of the gospel text starts to come pretty clear, right? That there's a, a separation that has to happen for our good, right? For our good. The, hmm. Whoever comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and even life itself cannot be my disciple. So again, I'll, I'll throw it back at you. Like, how would you read that based on what we just, what we just did? Hmm. I guess that it's, that it's God working against It's God working against the ways that we wrongly not just engage, but even think maybe we're loving one another, especially our own family, mm. but that actually lead us further away from them and further yes. away from, from him. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And so what Jesus is doing here is not taking away some good from us. Right. He's separating the good of family from the evil that sin has worked into us in the way we relate to each other. Right? I, we won't get into it right now, but if you go back a few weeks, you come to that gospel text where Jesus says, I've come not to bring peace, but a sword, and right. I will divide three against two and two against three, father against son, son against father, mother against daughter, daughter against mother, mother-in-law, and so on. Mm -hmm. And what I, what I think is happening there, at least one way of hearing this, is that there, the, the peace of God comes in the war God makes against all that is estranged in us, all that is corrupt in us. Hmm. And this is why in Scripture and in the tradition, the, the, the wrath of God or the force of God is often related to the work of the surgeon, right? We talked a few weeks ago about that passage in Lamentations that can be read as a torture scene or it can be read as a scene of surgery mm -hmm. that is being experienced by someone as torture because they're half out of their mind and they're eaten up with fever and they don't recognize that this pain they're feeling is the pain of being delivered from something that will kill them, not something that is killing them. And so I, I think scripture is awash with this. The tradition is awash with this. The mystics, the poets, the prophets are always reminding us, you know, listen to any Andy Squire song. You, you'll get that same playfulness, that same irony that God is against everything in us that is against the truth. And everything, God is going to destroy everything that destroys. God is going to curse every curse and break mm -hmm. every brokenness into wholeness. Mm -hmm. and that comes 
closest to home when we start talking about the ways in which the home itself needs to be redeemed. And this, this is one of the ways in which I think American evangelicalism, which, you know, I don't want anyone to catch strays here. I, I don't, and I don't want to simply once again, once again, bludgeon the evangelical tradition, but this is one of the ways in which we've, we've been very wrong on the whole. And that is that we've imagined that if we can just get the nuclear family right, mm-hmm. that everything else will be sorted in our churches and in our society. And it's just not true. I mean, in, in, in very real ways, the nuclear family is the site of the toxicity. Right? The nuclear waste is there. The damage that's being mm. done is coming from the way we're relating to each other when we are at home. Right. Mm-hmm. And Christ has to come. Bonifer, again, is exactly right here. Like Christians do not relate to each other directly, he says. We relate to each other in and through and with Christ. Right? Christ is always there with us. And one way of hearing that three against two and two against three is that Christ is there in the midst, right? When you and I are relating, it isn't just you and me. Because if it were just you and me, that would be master slave. And one mm-hmm. of us would be master and the other would be slave. Mm-hmm. But what Christ does is come to make it so that there is equality and mutuality and intimacy and reciprocity, freedom and wholeness between us. And that's, that's possible precisely because he separates us from what we imagine we should be as fathers or mothers or sons or brothers or sisters or husbands or wives and frees us into the truth of it. Hmm. So it's that, that separating us yeah, from the illusion, from the fantasy of family mm-hmm. into imagining what it's like to be a father as he is father, as a husband, as he is husband, a wife, as he is wife and so on down the line. Mm-hmm. So we're, uh, we're way too attached to, our models, the, our yes. plain readings of what the family is. And mm-hmm. that's why, even though I think Jesus' teaching here is very clear, I don't think there's anything hear it. ambiguous. We can't hear it because Mm-mm. our plain reading is defending us. It, it's deflecting, I should say, uh, the light, right? It, rather than allowing the light to, to come in. Yeah, it makes me think of a... Um there's a line from a poem that that you wrote and i think the title of the poem is jesus god's rest but Mm. you say till we're estranged from all strangeness yeah 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 i don't remember i can't quote the entire poem but yeah that there is that line in there like jesus you you need to as the sabbath of god you need to crowd our lives with this i think the line was crowd us with wearisome nearness that's right just be so present to us that you wear us down with with closeness until we're estranged from all strangeness Mm -hmm. and and that or estranged from all estrangement and i think that's what we're yeah i think that's what we're expecting needing wanting god to do whether we realize it or not is we need him to be with us in ways that are against us for our good Right? We need him to be so good to us that that goodness is working evil against the evil that is destroying us. It's, it's bringing death to death and cursing the curse. And we need that especially in the way we relate 
with those in our own homes, right? Our mothers and fathers, sisters and brothers, children, spouses. And if, if we don't let God come there, then we'll, we'll keep doing incredible damage to each other and, and wondering how it's happening. Right. Like, mm-hmm. and I think so much. Yeah. I mean, I could go on forever about that, but I think, I think you see, you see the point. Yeah. It is certainly not the case. And this is, and, and I, th- I think a clue is what he says and even life itself. He doesn't just say you have to hate mother, father, and so on. You have mm-hmm. to hate even life itself. What, what does he mean by hate? Well, hate as he hates, right? And we've got to come back to that, the ways in which he subverts what prisoner means. So how does Jesus hate? What, in what way does Jesus hate? We have to hate like that. And what does he hate? Not life as it is in him. You know, John 1, in him is life. Right. Clearly, God does not hate that. Right. God sees that and calls it good. So what does he hate? He's hating, that is, he's resisting what we're making of life, what we imagine life to be. So, so like in colloquial everyday speech, we say things like get a life or they need to get a life or I wish I had a life or I don't have a life. And usually what we mean by that is I'm not living the life I think I should be living. I don't have the money, the prestige, the recognition, the fulfillment that I expect, but that's fantasy about what life is. Right. And, and he is against the fantasy. Like he is absolutely opposed to that kind of magical thinking, that kind of fantasizing. And we have to hate that. And I'll, I'll quote Bonhoeffer again. This is what he means when he says, God hates visionary dreaming. Right. Obviously God is the one who gives visions and dreams. But there's yeah. a kind of visionary dreaming that is fantasizing about what this should be, mm-hmm. this life should be, what this church should be, what this school should be, what mm-hmm. this marriage should be. And that kind of fantasizing is, is rising up out of, out of the darkness of our hearts rather than the darkness of God's heart, which is light. And it has to be, it has to be broken. And it's broken by the light of God's dreaming the light of God's imagination, the light of, of goodness. So mm-hmm. I think all of these texts are, are pretty clear. <laughs> like if we will just shake free of what we think is the plain sense. Yeah. Because I mean, that kind of fantasy is what makes life impossible. It doesn't bring life, right? It brings you can't death. live, right? I mean, if you, if you are fantasizing, and this is Bonifer's point, like if you have this visionary dream about what the community should be you can never love the people who are actually there your flesh and blood neighbors these people with names and histories there there's a daniel berrigan poem the cleric's eye in which he talks about this priest who who kind of lives in his own head and he he cannot bear the earthiness of life as it actually is right he's Mm -hmm. he's living in a fantasy world let me see if i can find it quickly because i think this is this is a great maybe a good place to end and it's a great kind of example of the problem that i think jesus is coming to save us from i don't know if i can find it for some reason it's not letting me 
Okay, yeah, here it is. Okay. A young priest, dead suddenly at 40 years, had taught a metaphysic of the world. His mind was lucid, ingrained. He would say, it is deductibly verified that God is immutable and universal order converges on one being. So be it. This priest, alas for poetry, love, and hatred, was neither great nor evil. The truths he spoke, being inert, fired no mind to a flare. A remote world of rhythm, cause, finality, invited submission to his God. To his God. He never conveyed a man, Christ or himself. His cleric's eye forbade singulars, oddments, smells, sickness, pushcarts, the poor. He dwelt in the fierce Bronx, among a university's stone-faced acres, hemmed in by trucks and tumbrils, no avail. And for me, the, the, the line is, he never conveyed a man, Christ or himself. Right? Like, he, he couldn't be in his humanity, and, and he couldn't see Christ in his humanity. So he, he lives without avail. And to play on that word, he lives behind a veil. Right. Because he can't, he can't be present to reality as it is. He's, he's living in his own head in the worst sense. He's fantasizing. Mm -hmm. As Jeremiah will say, these prophets are, they're not prophesying the word of the Lord. They're prophesying their own fantasies. Right. So I think what Jesus comes is to bring the clarity of God's word against what we fantasize to be the plain meaning of the text. And the obvious meaning of what marriage is and what childbearing is and what obedience is and what mastery is, like our, our sense of how the world works. Like what you have here, you, you talk about nations in the Jeremiah passage, you talk about masters and slaves in the Philemon text, and you talk about marriage and family and children in the gospel text. Jesus comes against all that we fantasize those orders to be. Mm. What we imagine politics to be, what we imagine family to be, domestic life, and what we imagine religion to be, and what we imagine economics to be. Like every order in the world, Jesus comes against it. He's the Lord, and he comes against it to curse the curse, to do evil to the evils, to bring down death by death. And we, we're called to participate in it. And if we let him imprison us in that, like we'll, we'll enter that equality. I think, man, and I hope this isn't reductionistic or, or simplifying, but I mean, part of what I'm kind of taken by in the moment is this sense that how incredibly surprising the Christian life should actually be. Absolutely. I mean, surprising. We should be surprised as we participate in it. And mm -hmm. our life individually, I guess, too, but, all, but our life collectively together should be a surprise to yeah. all those around us. Absolutely. And the, like we, we, and that surprise will get, you know, will refract in all kinds of ways. I mean, I think there, there are delightful surprises. Yeah. There are, there are disappointments, but all of it is the working out of the goodness of God, triumphing over our resistances and the pressures that are against our, our growth into that mutuality and equality and intimacy that God means for us. So I think 
as always, these texts are gospel because the one speaking in them is the one who is good and wants to bring us into that goodness. And I, I hope if nothing else, people take away from this conversation, like come to every text expecting to be surprised. Like come to every conversation about these texts expecting to be surprised. Come to every sermon, whether you're giving it or hearing it, expecting to be surprised. And like that, that's that attentiveness to what's possible when the infinite, infinitely creative God is the one who's speaking. Like that, if I can put it this way, this is why we can't fret about what's problematic in these texts. Because the one whose texts these are is endlessly good and infinitely creative. So, yes, there are problems in these texts. Problems that are designed to be there. Because mm -hmm. the one who's good can use those problems to draw up the problems in me and between us and deal with them. Yeah. And it's that's the wonder of scripture is that, that these texts, this particular set of texts, is anointed by God, inspired, we say, to do that work, to do the work of bringing to the surface those resistances we have to the goodness of God, the curses that need to be cursed, the darkness that needs to be swallowed up by the shadow of God, and it does its work marvelously. And that's why we, we shouldn't panic, right, when we come up against hard texts, just the opposite. Yeah. Man. I love this so much. God is good. Thanks, Chris. You're welcome. Thank you. And I'm glad we were able to do it. Yeah, me too. Have a good I think night. Bill, I think Bill might join us next week. He was going to try to join tonight. We could. Oh, great. So okay. We'll see. Perfect. Good. Until next time. Thanks, man. All right.